Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. We didn't want it to be a movie about cowardice and masculinity and just that. It needed to be a little more uh, balanced. And the wife character in our film makes a couple of pretty miserable decisions. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Will Ferrell play a couple whose marriage is on the rocks in the new movie Downhill. Spoiler alert, it's not exactly a comedy. And the creator of Don't with Cats. The documentary series follows armchair detectives who hunt down a man who makes disturbing videos before much worse. You can do anything on the internet. You can post or publish pictures of violence, violence against people. That's kind of okay. But the one thing you can't do is hurt the fluffy kittens and cats. Plus critics on how to survive peak TV. It's the Frame Weekend from the Moan Broadcast Center at KPCC. I'm John Horn. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome to The Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. Thanks for joining us. Coming up later in the show, the filmmaker of The Assistant, it's a workplace thriller that was born from research into what it was like to work for Harvey Weinstein. But we'll start with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I sat down with her recently at the Sundance Film Festival. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's cool to be in your... I don't know. Am I allowed to say where we are? Yeah. It's not secret. It's very cool. We're in the basement of this rental house. I'm curled up on a couch. She was in Park City, Utah to premiere her new movie. It's called Downhill, and it's in theaters now. Julia co-stars with Will Ferrell, and she also produced the film. It's a remake of the Swedish film Force Majeure from 2014 with new scenes and dialogue. But the premise is pretty much the same as in the original. A family of four is on a ski vacation when the resort sets off a controlled avalanche. And the way that each parent reacts to the scare reveals some deeper divisions in their marriage. It looked like it was going to kill us. For a moment. the kids were screaming because it felt like we were going to die. Pete? Wow. And I look over at Pete, and he had grabbed his phone. Pete left us. I didn't leave you to be buried. I remember watching Force Majeure on my laptop, and there's a scene in which there's an avalanche, and the father doesn't exactly do the right thing. And I remember when I watched it, I backed it up and watched like Zapruder film. I went frame by frame. Like, what does he really do? How does he really react? Yeah. And in the original movie, it's a little vague. In your version, it's not. Well, we wanted it to be clear what he did, but unclear as to the fallout from it. So in other words, um, the wife in this situation, played by myself, is in utter shock and we wanted to unravel the sweater from that point, from a storytelling point of view. This movie is certainly about the repression of truth and truths and denial of truth, which is, I think, an interesting theme, particularly right now, and denial of facts. Um, But on both ends, because, you know, initially the couple, you know, it's a stunning moment, And then rather than a direct confrontation or conversation even about what had happened, they don't have that because I think what happened feels unmentionable because it's so shameful. And so they begin uh, by attacking an outside source, that is to say the safety the mountain safety guy, played by uh, Christopher Hivju, and um, who is in force majeure, who is also in force majeure, 
and wonderful in that movie as well as in our movie. Here's what I think you're not picking up on. This was a huge event for our family, okay? And sir, I don't want to make this a legal matter between mm. us. I don't. Billy. No, I don't want to. What I'm saying is yes. what I don't want. We're not in America where you sue because your coffee is hot, madam. Screw you. I'm an attorney. Okay. You've heard our complaint? Yeah, well, yeah. someone needs to hear it. <laughs> thank you for your time. And no thank you for your time from me. <laughs> that is for certain. I thought that was such a great idea to put it away from themselves, put that anxiety and that tension um, onto somebody else before they turn on one another. Pretty cool. We're talking with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who is the producer and actor in Downhill. What about Will? How did you end up casting him? I had seen Stranger Than Fiction and was a very big fan of his work in that. I mean, I'm a fan of his work period. I mean, the guy's a stone-cold genius. But he was able in Stranger Than Fiction to embrace a, a, a dramatic tone, and therefore he would be able to sort of tackle this material. And then we met, believe it or not, we'd never met before. Not at some random Hollywood party. Nothing. Not- and our, we have these parallel lives, you know, because of SNL and et cetera, et cetera. But no, we have lots of friends in common, but we'd never met. So we met for this project and we uh, had a sort of long coffee and talked at great, great length about the material. And... Um, <clears throat> He hadn't seen Force Majeure. He'd only read the script of Downhill. So, and he was like, I really want to do it. And I said, well, before you <laughs> sign on, make sure you really want to do it. Watch the original, you know, and make sure you want to step, put your toe into this water. There's a expression that a friend of mine who works in marketing uses, and it's an overcome. It's like a marketing obstacle that a film has. This is a serious movie about a marriage, and it stars people who are generally known for doing comedies. Yeah. Do you think that's an issue in terms of either people coming in thinking it's going to be funny or people who want to see a dramatic film and being unsure if totally. people that think our comedians can do it? Completely. It's been a challenge from a marketing point of view. I mean, the trailer was very uh, intentionally, I, I don't know, if you if you watch the trailer, you'll see that it's not chock full of jokes. Uh, that's by design. Um, even though there are plenty of jokes within the film. I mean, it, there are comedic beats, but I would say there are more dramatic beats than comedic beats. When I watched Downhill, I went back and rewatched Force Majeure because I wanted to see how that movie ended. And there's a scene in your film that is new that is, I think, my favorite scene in the movie where there's a conversation about what Will Ferrell's character can do. We wanted to have ambiguity at the end of this film. I think it's safe to say that people might leave the theater thinking either this couple is going to work it out or maybe this couple has got a real problem on their hands. And I think both truths are acceptable. (laughs) Um, It's up for interpretation. She makes a decision, and I think it's a questionable decision. Okay, I mean, you know, if I, as a as standing outside of it, I can understand why she did it, but I'm not sure it's exactly the right thing to do in that moment. I really liked playing that scene because I understood why she would come to that conclusion. But it was very important to me in this in the film that we made that this character that I played was flawed uh, because I we didn't want it to be a movie about you know, sort of cowardice and masculinity and just that. It needed to be a little more uh, balanced. And the wife character in our film makes a couple of pretty miserable decisions. Julia, great to see you. Thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's fun to talk to you always. Julia Louis-Dreyfus is a producer of the movie Downhill. She also stars in it opposite Will Ferrell. It's in theaters now. You're listening to The Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. And the Oscar goes to Parasite. South Korean filmmaker Bong Joon-ho made history at the Oscars this past Sunday when his film Parasite became the first non-English language movie ever to win Best Picture. Thank you, and yeah, I'm ready ready to drink tonight, so... (laughs) 
Until next morning. His high-profile win could be an opportunity for people to discover the long and rich history of Korean cinema and more of director Bong's films, of which there are many. Here to talk with me about it is Ingu Kang. She's a TV critic at The Hollywood Reporter and also writes about film. I was a really long-time fan of Bong Joon-ho to start with. And um, it was just great to see someone who was so deserving of really like all the trophies in the world actually get his due for a film that he was highly deserving for. And, you know, as a Korean American, I know that this one is going to mean a lot for not just Korean cinema, which is important, but also just You know, I knew that, like, my relatives, for example, would feel slightly better and have, like, a little more spring in their step the next day because something that they could connect with uh, had won this, like, giant prize on an international stage. So Bong Joon-ho is the first Korean-language filmmaker to win so many top prizes, but he's certainly not the first Korean-language filmmaker. So let's talk a little bit about the country's long history in movies. How would you describe it, and are there some filmmakers outside of Bong Joon-ho that you would recommend? So one of the milestones that Parasite managed to make last year was it became the first Korean film to win the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. And that was on the 100th anniversary of Korean film. I think probably the best-known Korean filmmaker until now has been Park Chan-wook, who made The Handmaiden and also Old Boy. And I think Old Boy was sort of the film that really launched Korean film into the international art house scene. Park Chan-wook is someone that I would highly recommend if you haven't seen Old Boy, if you haven't seen The Handmaiden. I would also recommend probably the earlier works of Kim Ki-duk. He did the IFC staple of the 90s, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring. And then, of course, there was a brilliant film last year called Burning that came out that was directed by Lee Chang-dong. And he himself is also a very storied filmmaker. And so there's a lot. We're talking with The Hollywood Reporter's Ingu Kang. Let's talk a little bit about director Bong and some of his other movies. I think he would agree that people should not go back and watch Barking Dogs Never Bite, his first feature. But there's so many good movies he's made, including Okja, The Host, Snowpiercer. If you were to give people kind of a couple of movies to check out, where would you start? I would tell you if you've already seen Parasite, Go with Memories of Murder, which is his second film, and go with Mother, which is, I think, one of the names that you did not name check, but it's actually my personal Bong Joon-ho favorite. When Memories of Murder came out in 2003, it really uh, became one of those arrivals of an auteur. It took the Korean equivalent of the Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor. Uh, It also stars Sung Kang-ho, who also stars in Parasite and also the host. And uh, I think it just gives you a very different, very gritty look at Korean culture. But I think Mother is like a film for me that like if you just want to be utterly floored and just like look catatonically onto the TV screen as the credits finish rolling up, that's the one that I would recommend. Korea is a nation of about 50 million people. How would you describe its film industry? I feel like because Korea is such a small country, it is a country that really likes to gravitate toward lots of different things. American cinema is huge there. Uh, So is Japanese cinema. And so I think Koreans as a whole, like many other countries in the world, are very culturally eclectic in a way that like, it's almost impossible to imagine mainstream American audiences being. The domestic film market is incredibly robust, and it does receive government support because one of the projects of the South Korean government for the last few decades has been a project of soft power. Uh, to create basically a pop music industry, a movie industry, a television industry that is going to not only appeal to the domestic market, but also appeal to a larger international market. Um, I think a lot of people call this the Korean new wave. And I think that the 
Korean film production side is as robust as it is because it does get a lot of funding from the government itself. Ingu Kang is a TV critic at The Hollywood Reporter, where she also writes about film. Ingu, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Coming up, the Netflix documentary series, Don't with Cats. It tells the story of the people who tracked down a man who posted animal abuse videos on the dark web, but that was just the start of his crimes. That's next on The Frame Weekend. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's The Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. This past week, the rape and sexual assault trial of Harvey Weinstein got that much closer to a conclusion. Powerful testimony in the Harvey Weinstein. At the center of the case, two witnesses who say they were assaulted. The defense is arrested at the sex assault trial of Harvey Weinstein without putting the former movie mogul on the witness stand. Jury deliberations are set to begin next week. Meanwhile, a movie that's largely inspired by stories of working for the disgraced movie mogul just arrived in theaters. The film is called The Assistant, and it follows a day in the life of a lowly assistant to a producer who's got the whole office doing his bidding, including shepherding women to hotel rooms, fending off his wife, and replenishing a stash of syringes to treat his erectile dysfunction. The movie stars Julia Gardner. It's written and directed by the Australian filmmaker Kitty Green, and she based the fictional script on interviews she conducted with people who work in the film industry. I mean, I spoke to a lot of people. I spoke to people who had worked in at different film companies. I started with Weinstein Company and Miramax, and I broadened out to people that worked at agencies and who worked, you know, at broadcast like at networks. And I think the weird thing for me was that everyone had the similar stories, like the same stories were coming up again and again, and these patterns were emerging. I also spoke to people in London and Australia. Um, and so that to me was really fascinating, that everyone kind of felt similarly about like things that they felt were un- they were uncomfortable about, how those concerns were kind of ignored or rejected by HR departments and other kind of people higher up in the, in the companies they worked for. Um, and so, yeah, that was really fascinating. And as, as soon as those patterns emerged, I started writing these stories down. There's a girl waiting at reception. She says that she's supposed to start here today. Working here with us? Where's she from? Where's she from? Idaho. Idaho? Idaho? Is that the one you met in Sun Valley? Oh, her. She's been here before. A few times. Uh, send her in. Often people don't know the full extent of what they're involved in. They're getting bits and pieces and not... They're kind of getting the dots, but they're unable to join them. And I think if there is a culture of silence, you don't really ever discover the full extent of what's going on behind closed doors because you're almost discouraged from chatting to your colleagues about certain questions or certain concerns you may have. So, yeah, all of that. I mean, that became kind of the structure of the film is about one girl and her experience and how what she knows and what she doesn't know, what she's trying to piece together. One of the things that is central to the conceit of the film is that we know the assistant, we know other staff people, but we don't know exactly who it is they're working for. That person is kept off camera and mysterious. Why did you make that decision? Firstly, bad men have had enough screen time, in my opinion. Secondly, I was interested in the larger systems. I wasn't interested in him necessarily. We know we've read enough in the media. We know what's going on behind that closed door. And what I was interested in more was the culture and the environment surrounding that. To fix this problem which we've got, I think we need to examine sort of all facets of it. And I think the idea of somebody who is tr- just trying to get ahead at work and being prevented by kind of this, these forces is just is, is an important story to be told. One of the things that I was really struck by is the atmosphere of the office. There's this timelessness. You don't know if it's morning, if it's night. There's all the minutia of what an assistant does, you know, like plane reservations, like, you know, is the chef taken care of? Is the driver ready? That feels so authentic that it feels like you are really in that office. How did you go about making sure that you were 
portraying what that job looks like outside of what these people actually are wrestling with on a personal level? My background is in documentary, and so I'm always interested in the details. More so, like that to me was really important. That in Jane, the lead character's day and her the tasks she does and her routine was very real and authentic. And so, I mean, I just I worked with a big team, and we just was really kind of focused on making sure that felt accurate and right. Um, and I guess that was the process. That was the way we went about it. I mean, I think you're, when you're dealing with um, a film that's about people, a person who is unwittingly complicit in something. You need to look at time in her day and her, her to figure out just well how much of her job was just getting coffee and photocopying, and how much it was of it was doing something that perhaps she was uncomfortable with, or you know that can be seen as complicit in some way. We're talking with Kitty Green about her film, The Assistant. There's a moment in the film where Jane, who's played by Julia Garner, goes to the HR department, and the HR person is played by Matthew McFadden. What's your plan? I'm sorry? Where do you want to be in five to ten years? Oh, uh, I, I want to produce. I want to be a producer. You do? Yeah. <laughs> that's, okay, that's excellent. We could use more women producers. You know, that's a, it's a tough job, but... I can see that you've got what it takes. So why are you in here trying to throw it all away over this bull****? Tell us about that scene and why you needed to include it in the film. I guess I made this film so we can kind of examine the system that we've created, that we're all a part of, that contributed to the fact that women have been hurt and sidelined for so long. So I wanted to examine the system as a whole, and a big part of that system is the HR teams who often are there to protect the company. They're there to, that's their job, is to make sure the company's protected and not the employees. I mean, she went into that scene. I mean, often people go into these HR departments and to make a complaint and come out just so rattled and so confused. And it's almost like he rips apart her complaint immediately in front of her and dismisses her. And I just wanted to make sure that felt, um, yeah, real and authentic. Kitty Green is the writer and director of The Assistant. Kitty, thanks so much for coming back on The Frame. Thank you for having me. The Assistant is in select theaters now. You're listening to The Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. It's fair to say that TV viewers today have more options than ever before. And while that might be a godsend to couch potatoes around the globe, for TV critics, it's a little bit of a mixed blessing. The Frame contributor Colin Friesen went to the annual Television Critics Association gathering to check in on how the professionals are coping in the era of peak TV. I watched the terrible thing so you don't have to. (laughs) That's Sarah Rodman, the head of the Television Critics Association. Currently a features editor at Entertainment Weekly, she's been coming to these events for the last 16 years. And although the critics now get episode screeners in advance, Rodman says this year set a record with more than 679 scripted shows vying for their attention. How do you get through it as a a TV critic? You don't, is the short answer. Because nobody can watch 679 TV shows. Those chimes mean it's time for yet another session at the posh Langham Hotel in Pasadena. On this day, CBS hit a high note with its Star Trek reboot, Picard, starring Patrick Stewart. All that emptiness... According to Rodman, the ever-increasing number of shows to watch, and thus workload for the critics, has changed the way many members approach their work. With the proliferation of shows and platforms, that a lot of people have tended more towards we want to celebrate the things that are good instead of wasting column space on things that are bad. So does that mean television critics have become even more vital during this era of peak TV? Well, sort of. But I will say that it is both more and less important. The more that there are shows, the more people can make their own decision. Like some people are like, I'm just going to browse through everything and make up my own mind. I don't care what critics say, but that's probably always been true for that viewer. So I think that if there are a ton of shows, there definitely are people that are looking for somebody to say, keep me from drowning. What I think the TV critic today is most important for is curation. 
we can tell you what's good. We can tell you what is quality. We can tell you what's bad. But people, water seeks its own level. That's Damian Holbrook, who writes for TV Guide magazine. Holbrook, along with fellow reviewer Rick Bentley, sat down between sessions to explain how critics can draw people to some shows that might have otherwise been overlooked. And I, and I think it's our responsibility to be the guys who, find, and men and women, who find those shows that are worth seeing mm-hmm. and promote, you know, like, I don't know if somebody would have found Fleabag right. had we not been trump- trumpeting it. Mm-hmm. People didn't find their way to Shit's Creek until its fourth season. And we had been championing it for years, but nobody was looking at it because it was on a smaller network. Some cable stations weren't even carrying pop TV, but we were talking so much about it and praising it so much that people then started to find it on Netflix. Dana Calvo, who created the show Good Girls Revolt for Amazon, is a former reporter who's been up on that stage at the TV Critics Association get-together. You know, it's a little strange for me. I'm facing people that I've worked with before. She agrees that TV critics generally don't have the power to kill a show and can help find an audience for overlooked programs. But she adds sometimes reviewers can do even more than that. And sometimes, you know, with streaming, you get the sometimes you get the pilot to come out and then eight months later, you have the rest of the series launch. Um, some of the opinions of the pilot we heard and took note of. With only so many people wanting to read about TV, everyone points to social media and the rise of TV bloggers and tweeters as a major disruption to the status quo. But TCA President Rodman maintains professional critics aren't going away anytime soon. This isn't purely promotion for most of the people who are here, but it's still the best bang for their buck that they're getting 200 some odd voices all at once talking about their show for good or for ill. The, the sort of massive impact of it is still true. It might be tempting to look at the decline of newspapers and magazines and see a time when events like this don't make financial sense for broadcasters and streamers. But who would have predicted the rise of podcasters taking deep dives into their favorite shows? So while events like this certainly aren't cheap, for now at least, the show, make that the shows, will definitely go on. And on, and... For The Frame, I'm Colin Friesen. If you're just joining us, this is The Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. As Colin Friesen was pointing out, there is so much on TV these days, it's easy to miss some really good things. And that almost happened to me with a three-part Netflix documentary series, Don't F*** With Cats. What type of individual would think... I'm going to take a vacuum-sealed bag and place two kittens in it. It is a disturbing and fascinating story about a small band of armchair investigators who use Google, Facebook, and the Internet to find Luca Magnata. He's a cat killer turned murderer, and they track him down even before the police do. Mark Lewis is the director of Don't with cats. He started retracing the steps of two of the amateur online detectives a couple of years after the incident occurred. Yeah, so look, the two protagonists in the series are Deanna Thompson and John Green. John Green's not his real name. Uh, they're these two animal activists, justice seekers, who who, who tried to hunt Luca Magnotta down long before the murder. This had been, you know, 18 months, the two years of their lives that they've been hunting this guy seeing the warning signs, thinking that he was going to turn to murder, and then he did. It was, for them, as with everybody in this series, an incredibly traumatising experience. You know, a, a man, Jun Lin, tragically died. And you can't forget this is not a story about Luca Magnotta, it's a story about the victim, Jun Lin. So when we came to them and said, look, we might like to make a, a, a series about it and about... Um, about your efforts to try and hunt him down before he became a killer. They were very reluctant to do it. So was that part of your pitch to them, that this could be in some ways a cautionary tale about what to look for and when to act and why these things are important to notice? Absolutely it was, John, but it was as much their pitch to us. We never wanted to make sort of, what I don't know what you would call it, like serial killer porn. We didn't want to make a, some trashy, salacious kind of documentary series. There was The, the, the interesting thing about this story 
is that it has some very important things to say about internet culture. It has very important things to say about the warning signs of people who are going to turn to murder. It has a, a very, you know, an important thing to say about about social media and about how, you know, we all uh, now sort of get our self-esteem and value from social media and sort of, you know, uh, social esteem from the internet. In these videos, not only of the murder of the cats, but also of Jun Lin, there are things that are referenced and we don't see But there are also things that you don't even mention, especially about what happens to Jun Lin toward the end of the video that is beyond horrific. It's almost indescribable. What were the rules about how much you could even describe? Because you don't show a lot, but there are things that happen, especially in the murder video, that you don't even mention that are beyond understanding. With all of the videos, the animal abuse videos and the murder video, we were very clear from the start that we did not want this to be a kind of gratuitous program that you gratuitously showed people what were in these videos. They are horrific. Um, the murder video is absolutely horrific and the things that Luca does to Jun Lin are unspeakable. Uh, equally, the animal abuse videos are h- horrific to watch. We never wanted to show them. Um, it was important, however, that we, with the in the case of the animal videos, that we showed somebody watching them, so that you could communicate to the audience how awful they were and what kind of a reaction they elicited. After that, I see a black and white puppy with the individual holding a knife. At that point, I had to stop. I had to walk out. This was ridiculous. I come back in. Then I see... I had to stop. (laughs) You know, how it affected people motivated them to hunt him down even more. And that was really, really important. So the rules were, for us as filmmakers, we didn't want to show the details. However, in the case of the animal abuse videos, we needed to show certain frames, not frames of the murder of the animal, the killings of the animals. But there is obviously in, in the videos, you know, frames which are evidence. It looks like a very small, cramped room. But for me... There's a lot of information in there. Light sockets, electrical receptacles. And those are things that we know can point to, like, maybe a specific area of the world. Seeing a cigarette packet in the back of the frame, by seeing a doorknob, by seeing a table, by seeing the vacuum. And those frames, obviously, we had to show because they were part of the the forensic research of these incredible animal activists. We're talking with Mark Lewis about his documentary series, Don't with cats. I want to ask you about how you approach dealing with the victim of this murder, Jun Lin, because one of my problems with the podcast Serial is that Heyman Lee's life and death was almost kind of an accessory to the story. It wasn't important who she was and what life she led. And it feels like you have a slightly different perspective on honoring the victim of this crime. I do. I mean, I, I think it's, it's incredibly important that we honour him. You know, it, it's still, you know, I will admit one of the dangers of doing any kind of true crime documentary or, or, or documentary that concerns murder is that there is sort of this sort of natural kind of focus on the murderer that people are wanting to know about the murderer. We wanted to approach things differently and make sure that there was a fair and even focus and that we really understood who the victim was. So we very fortunately uh, got an interview from his 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 very best friend Benjamin Sue, and you know I'm eternally grateful for Benjamin for for what he did. He he came from China, especially to Canada, to film with us, and you know was the most eloquent advocate for his friend. I want to play another clip from the series. This is very close to the end of it, and it's Deanna Thompson, one of the internet sleuths, talking about the broader question that I think this series raises. Did we feed the monster, or did we create it? And you, you at home watching a whole documentary about Luca Minata. Are you complicit? As she's looking right into the camera at this moment, and it's it's not essentially a hypothetical question, it's a real question. Do you have a way to answer it? I think, you know, when when you have this story, which is the story of a man who had tried to be an actor who tried to be a model uh, and basically failed or not done well, and so was so desperate for notoriety and fame that he turned to to killing instead of initially animal abuse and then killing in order to 
get the notoriety, to get fame? And to what extent would we as filmmakers, uh, to what extent would Deanna and John Green as participants in the documentary, and to what extent back then when they had been looking for him, you know, and hunting him down, and therefore every time they tried to hunt him down, he would do worse things, to what extent were we all complicit? And the answer to a, to, to, to a large degree is a little bit yes. And are, are we as as viewers sort of complicit in being really interested in true crime, being really interested in murder stories, and therefore we're all feeding a person like Luca Magnotta. Does that mean that we shouldn't make a series about that? I emphatically think no. I mean, I think we should be making a series about this because there are important things to say. There are important lessons to learn. But I think, you know, there's no doubt that we are all interested in true crime. We are all interested in, in murder stories. And, and that, you know, was, was something that I think we had just had to tackle head on. Mark Lewis is the director of Don't With Cats. It's available now on Netflix. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up on The Frame Weekend, in L.A. right now, there are a couple of very interesting but radically different plays. One is about the hidden misogyny inside the U.S. Constitution. In the other, Isabella Rossellini gives a multimedia presentation on animal life. It's The Frame Weekend. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to The Frame Weekend. I'm John Horn. The play What the Constitution Means to Me, written by Heidi Schreck, is part memoir, part history lesson, and part debate. And it leaves you contemplating your own relationship with the founding document of our democracy. The largely one-woman show is currently on stage at the Mark Taper Forum. It stars actress Maria Dizia in the role originated by Heidi Schreck on Broadway. A few years ago, I was thinking about the Constitution for various reasons. And I started to wonder what exactly it was that my 15-year-old self loved so much about this document. And I did. I loved it. I was a zealot. So there's that line, the 15-year-old self is the 15-year-old self of Heidi, not exactly Maria, but maybe it's a little bit of you, a little bit of her. How did you go about that transformation? I was really thinking about it through um, Heidi's 15-year-old self. My, I mean, I did debate, and I did have that interest in public speaking and debate, but I did not have her interest in the Constitution. I really managed to avoid it in my education for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that was. Avoid. No, actually, it really, no it's actually sadly, surprising. Yeah. No, I know. I feel like that's one of the things I've been thinking about is that I was like, it's really amazing how if you're not seeking it out, you could really get through a lot of years of education without encountering it. Um, of course, I had my own love of things that, you know, I have thought of in terms of, uh, you know, of being Heidi, but I think very much it was exciting to enter her world and to think about who this 15-year-old girl is who loves the Constitution. Heidi, so much of this story is not only about the Constitution, but about the history of sexual violence committed or violence committed against women in your family. By watching somebody else perform your text, do you have a new perspective yourself on what this story means and how people receive it. Yes, I think so. I mean, I've been through a long evolution now of my relationship to that history in my family. Uh, You know, when I first started performing the play in 2017, I had never spoken about it out loud in public. I really hadn't told many people at all, uh, even though it was such, it very much shaped my growing up. And so I, I, I've moved through lots of stages, I think, with it, you know, from just confronting the taboo of talking about it in public, um, the terror of that, then moving on to realizing the more I talked about it, the more people would reach out to me or wait to talk to me after the play or send me messages thanking me for talking about it and sharing their own stories. Um, and I think by performing the play, I just began to realize uh, even though I understood this statistic, so I understand intellectually 
that almost everyone in our country has been touched by physical and sexual violence, particularly toward women, uh, like in their either in their immediate family or their extended family or through friendships or personally. I just I, I finally understood on a visceral level how how deep it goes, how common it is in our culture, and that just gave me a new understanding of why why I was performing the play, why it was important to get these things like out in the sunlight. Mm-hmm. Um, and watching Maria do it, I think I have the same feeling. I, I have that it feels to me almost like um, a, a kind of healing ritual, simply like telling the stories again and again, framing them as a part of a larger context, searching for um, a way forward and searching for how to find hope <laughs> while confronting the truth about the violence in our culture. For me, they've all been kind of various stages of healing, actually, and watching Maria is a whole new stage of that, I think. We're talking with Heidi Schreck and Maria Dizia about the play, What the Constitution Means to Me. It's now at the Mark Taper Forum. I want to play another clip. Again, this is Maria as Heidi in What the Constitution Means to Me. My mom told me that when you are paralyzed by rage and despair, you have to picture a woman running along a beach with a dog. There's more. If you just watch the dog, it keeps going back and forth, back and forth. So it looks like progress is constantly being undone. But if you watch the woman, you can see that she is moving steadily forward and forward and forward. I hope. I mean, it's such a beautiful and haunting line. And you talk about a book, Trauma and Recovery, by Judith Herman, and how that gave you a perspective on this issue And there's a quote in the book that really seems to echo the themes of the play. And the quote is this, Helplessness and isolation are the core experiences of psychological trauma. Empowerment and reconnection are the core experiences of recovery. Mm -hmm. And that almost sounds like a description of the play and how it might work with audiences. I'm curious if you feel that. To not just be telling these stories uh, randomly, but actually to be telling them to build an argument about the way our country and the way that the Constitution has affected the lives of women feels like it is the uh, beginning of something. It feels like it's the the beginning of a of a process of of healing. There, there's one experience that I had that was really vivid, and I haven't mentioned it to Heidi, but there was an older white man in the second row, and he was giving me so much positive energy that I just started crying because... In um, the middle of the show. Yeah, but while I was speaking, I mean, I I know very much that my first job (laughs) is to get the words out (laughs) in a way that they are understandable to other people. And I actually felt it didn't feel like that moment was a distraction from the play. It felt like I almost wanted to say that I'm like this. It it made me understand something that I didn't understand before that um, from I'll only speak for myself because I don't know how other people feel about it, but that actually to have the support of the people that you can view as the oppressor is an incredibly uh, powerful and humanizing thing for you. It makes you feel that you see the other person looking at you and seeing you as a human being and identifying with you and feeling that what you have to say is important is uh, so freeing. They're listening. Yeah. No, it really, that was the thing. It was a really, and to to see it happening right there, to see yourself being listened to was very empowering. When you're performing the play as yourself and not as an invented character, there is a different relationship between performer and audience about what is performance and what is truth and what is personal history versus what is story. And Heidi, when you make that decision, it both makes the play more immediate and also, I would imagine for you, more terrifying in terms of how much of you is part of this experience. Uh, yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> no, it, it, it is terrifying. And I certainly, I mean, I've performed the play over 200 times and mm-hmm. I've had, you know, it feels different on different nights. I've, I've had nights where I'm like, I don't know if I got to the hope part. I've had nights where I was very angry performing 
most of it because of what was happening or or where sort of grief overtook me because they are very personal stories. Um, but somehow the structure of the play kind of always allowed me, even if I would have, say, what I would call a very unhopeful show, there's something about the way the play is constructed. I say that as if I didn't construct it, but whoever <laughs> constructed it, it... Um, <laughs> It forces you, one, to confront things, and then it also forces you to move forward as a performer, as a person. Like, it requires you to take a leap of imagination. It requires you to imagine something better. And I found that that always kind of got me through night after night. Heidi Schreck is the playwright of What the Constitution Means to Me. Maria Dizia is performing it at the Mark Taper Forum through February 28th. Heidi and Maria, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. To close out this edition of The Frame Weekend, we have an unexpected theater production about animals, and it is created by and stars Isabella Rossellini. Rosalini met with Frame contributor Chloe Veltman at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco, and as exotic birds and butterflies fluttered above, they chatted about training dogs, breeding chickens, and making theater. Get out of there! Get out! Put your hands up! On your head! Do it! That's Isabella Rossellini in an intense scene from the 1986 thriller Blue Velvet. These days, the actor's wild animal instincts are coming out in a very different way. Isn't it wonderful that the big bad wolf was taken out of you and now you are just a little nice doggy? That's Rossellini and her dog, Pan. They're coming to LA with Link Link Circus, a stage show all about animal behaviour. The tour also had a stop in San Francisco, and it seemed like the California Academy of Sciences was a perfect place for us to meet. Look how many different colours they have. These butterflies are amazing. Wow. Oh, yeah, you put some oranges there to attract them, see? They come to the dish. Do you think a, a creature like that has uh, emotions, has thoughts? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I mean... Butterflies are so far from us, no? They're not mammalians, they don't even have a backbone, they don't have a spine, so it's harder. But when it comes to animals that are closer to us, apes, chimpanzee, gorilla, one can imagine that we share a lot in common. Yeah. It's a little surreal to be strolling around the Cal Academy's four-story replica of a tropical rainforest on a cold, wet Monday evening with this Hollywood icon. Rossellini's just flown in from Seattle, even though she's tired from all the travel, she still exudes elegance and an impish sense of humour. She tells me she's been interested in the animal kingdom since she was a little girl. So I ask her about her childhood pets. Well, my parents always had dogs and cats, so I think their first connections were the pet at home. But we are a family of animal lovers. There was a photo of the family recently, and we are five people and we were photographed with our dogs and we were six dogs. The the dogs outnumbered us. (laughs) You went back to school to get a master's degree in animal behaviour. What's one of the most surprising things you've learned about the relationship between animals and humans in the course of your studies? I found out things that were fascinating. The process of domestication, it was unclear to me. It's still unclear, but of course... A wolf became the dog, a buffalo became the cow, a wild fowl became domestic chickens, and how our ancestors, without even understanding evolution, were able to create animals that were useful to themselves. That, to me, is a fascinating process. Link Link Circus builds on a series of films and performances you created about the mating and parenting habits of various animals, spiders, hamsters, bees, and so on. Why did you decide to parlay your academic pursuits into theatrical ones? As an actress, I also did a lot of independent films. So I was associated with Sundance, and they asked me, would you like to make a series of two minutes film? But if it is about the environment because Robert Redford is such a great environmentalist, we will be more inclined to finance it. And at first I said, well, I'm not, I don't know what to do. And then, boom, I said, oh, we could do the mating ritual of animals. It could be very simple. So I say, if I were a fly, I'd become a fly. I would mate this way. 
If I were an earthworm, I'd transform myself in an earthworm. And they made that way. They ordered the series, and it was very successful. It really opened up a whole new career for me in my 60s. What makes this latest show different from your previous animal-focused productions? This one is made a little bit like a circus. There is also a little doggy. Tell us, please, about what she'll be doing on stage. She does dress up as different animals. Bee, a dinosaur, a sheep, a lion, a chicken. Does she make the noises of the chickens and the lions? No, no, she barks. (laughs) Do you ever feel like she steals the limelight from you? Oh, yeah, she does, definitely. Everybody, they want to meet her at the end. Everybody comes with treats, no more flowers for me. (laughs) So, um, you recently started raising chickens, I read, at your Long Island farm, and you even wrote a book about it. What do you learn from hanging out with your chickens? We're trying to bring back, instead of the industrial chicken, heritage breeds. They are healthier animals. They are able to raise their baby naturally. So I think it's important not only to conserve for nostalgia of the past, but because it's very important to keep the biodiversity. How do people react when they hear Isabella Rossellini, you know, movie star, model, muse to Martin Scorsese and David Lynch, has written a book about chicken farming and is touring around the country with her dog in a circus? I mean, it's also different, Isabella. So I want to know a little more about how uh, your latest activities are being perceived. Sometimes I see that people might have just known me as a, as a model and so... They imagine that, you know, I wear a lot of makeup and I only talk about facial. And so when they say, well, you're a farmer, I didn't expect that. But I just do what is interesting to me. And there are many things that are interesting to me from cosmetics to animals. (laughs) Isabella Rossellini performs her show, Link Link Circus, this weekend at the Malibu Playhouse. And later in the week, she'll be at the Lodge Room in Highland Park. And that is what we got for today. The Frame Weekend is edited and produced by Darby Maloney, along with producers Monica Bushman, Jonathan Shiflett, and Julia Paskin, with help this week from Itzy Quintanilla. Eduardo Perez is our engineer. The Frame's theme music is by Taylor McFerrin, and the show's senior producer is Oscar Garza. I'm John Horn from the Moen Broadcast Center at KPCC. Have a great weekend. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.